Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, and he remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower in the field, for the wind passes over it, and it is gone. And its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. And his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. That's Psalm 103. That's a psalm of David. And as David wrote that psalm, undoubtedly he was reflecting back on his own relationship with God, his own experiences with God, reflecting on a God full of steadfast love and mercy. But David is also doing something else in that psalm. That psalm is not just personal for David because on top of reflecting on his own personal interaction with his creator, he's reflecting upon Scripture. And David is quoting Scripture in that psalm. Specifically, he's quoting from Exodus chapter 34, a passage that we're going to talk about next week and then in the weeks that follow as we learn more about the character and nature of our God. But what I want you to see from that psalm is that David is a man who knew God, a man who knew Scripture, and who knew God through Scripture. And so what we're going to do over the course of the next two weeks is ask this question. How do we read the Bible? And we're going to reflect on our approach towards Bible reading. We talk about the importance of Bible reading, but how is it that we read the Bible? Is there a process that we use to read Scripture? Is it a healthy process? And do we need to reflect upon it? So we're going to think about all that this morning and then next week. You guys are so patient with me last week because I gave a really long lesson. I was going to do another one today, and then I thought, nope, let's split this in two. So we're going to do two normal length lessons. I hate breaking off a train of thought, but I hope you'll come back next week so that we can journey through this together. So how do we read the Bible? I want to start with some, some serious news this morning. I hope you won't take this too badly, but I have to tell you, if I'm being honest, you have a hermeneutic. <clears throat> you have a hermeneutic, every last one of you. Now I know if you're hearing that for the first time, there's two questions that immediately come to mind. Number one, how bad is it? And number two, how do I get rid of it? But I want you to know 
This isn't a bad thing. You have a hermeneutic, but don't be scared. All right? What is a hermeneutic? Why do you have a hermeneutic to begin with? What is a hermeneutic? A hermeneutic is simply a fancy way of saying this. We all have a method that we use to interpret and apply Scripture. Every one of us do. Now, you may not have thought about it very much, and you might not know what the formula for that hermeneutic is, but you all have a hermeneutic. You have a method that you use to interpret and apply Scripture to your own life. You have a hermeneutic whether you mean to or not. Whether it's intentional or not. Some people have studied this and thought about it and read books about it. And they're very careful about the way that they articulate their hermeneutic. And they know exactly what they're doing when they open scripture up and read it and interpret it and apply it. And some others are brand new students of the Bible. They're reading scripture with fresh eyes. Sometimes intimidated by it. Not knowing exactly where to go to find what they want. And not knowing when they do find it what to do with it. It's okay. Whether you know you have one or not, and whether you've thought about it or not, you have one. And here's what I want you to think about. A poorly thought out hermeneutic can lead to eisegesis instead of exegesis. And you're thinking, oh, the preacher used three nerd words in a row. I'm out. I did, and I'm sorry. But here's what these words mean, right? You have a way of interpreting and applying scripture. That's your hermeneutic. And if you haven't thought very much about it, and you're just accidentally stumbling through Scripture blindly, then what eisegesis is, is where you read into Scripture. In other words, I already have preconceived ideas about what Scripture should be saying. I already have presuppositions. And there's all kinds of things that go into that, our worldview, all kinds of stuff. Even cultural disconnect between us and the authors of the Bible. But we have all of these presuppositions. And when we approach Scripture and we just lay those on top of Scripture and we read Scripture through the lens of all those presuppositions, we end up just making Scripture say what we already thought it should say to begin with. And we end up neutering Scripture in a way. You remember what Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12 says? That the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any what? Two-edged sword When you handle a sharp two-edged sword, what happens sometimes? You get cut, right? And sometimes scripture does that to us. And if we don't think carefully about our hermeneutic, we approach scripture in a haphazard way, we end up reading into scripture more than we read out of scripture. So what is eisegesis, reading into scripture? What is exegesis? It's reading out of scripture. It's allowing scripture to have its full power and authority in our lives. When we read it, we are understanding what the authors of that scripture originally intended for it to say, and we're allowing it to take root in our hearts and to transform us more into the image of the Son of God. So we need to think about this. Yes, it's nerdy. Yes, it's a little bit heavy, but we need to think about it, and I invite you to do that over the course of the next couple weeks. We tend to reduce the complexity of scripture And in order to make it more palatable to people, and we'll say things like this, the Bible says what it means and means what it says. Anybody ever heard that before? That's a common saying in restoration circles, right? Well, yes, it does. But if we think by that, that we can open up Scripture, and for the first time in in just a casual approach towards Scripture, read it once and intuitively understand what it's telling us, then we're going to be sorely mistaken and very much disappointed sometimes by Scripture. I would remind you that, yes, the Bible means what it says and says what it means, but also, remember what Peter said? 
2 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. Listen to this. He says, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul. Which Paul is he referring to? Paul the Apostle, right? Who wrote 13 letters in our New Testament. Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. Listen to what he says. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. You ever encountered a passage from Paul and thought, Paul, I love you. I have no idea what you're talking about right now. There are some things in Paul's letters that are difficult to understand. And I love the fact that even Peter is willing to recognize this. And listen to what he says. They're difficult to understand which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Think about all the gems we can pull out of that passage alone. First of all, Peter knew that Paul was an author of letters. He was familiar with them. He recognized them as scripture, but he also recognized that if you don't approach them correctly, you can misunderstand them. And that can be destructive to your faith if you misunderstand scripture. We must approach scripture appropriately. We must think carefully about the way that we encounter Scripture, the way that we read Scripture, the way that we interpret Scripture, and the way that we apply Scripture. We have to think about our hermeneutic. So if our hermeneutic is so important, what does the perfect hermeneutic look like? And this is where I'm going to make it really easy for you guys. So some of you I've seen already, you like to take notes, good for you. Some of you like to take screenshots of the slides. You can look at them later. Good for you. Some of you don't. I want to encourage everyone right now, either get something to write on or get your phones ready so you can take a picture. I've got a handy-dandy chart here that will make this so very easy. This is what the perfect hermeneutic looks like. All right, everybody got it? Okay. In other words, it's not that easy. There is no simple equation I can give you where if you do A, B, and C, you will properly interpret Scripture every time. We can't reduce the way that we approach Scripture down to a simple equation. It doesn't work that, that way. Scripture is alive, and it's active, and it's powerful, and sometimes it's simple, and sometimes it's complicated. And we need to understand all that as we approach Scripture. So then how do we approach Scripture? Well, there are formulas that people have come up with. In fact, in our own fellowship, in Churches of Christ, historically, we have arrived at a place where we have a, a specific formula that we use to study and interpret and apply Scripture, a very well-thought-out hermeneutic. And I want to share that with you today in very, very uh, simple terms. Okay? I know that this is, this is meant to be just kind of a, a snapshot, just a, a glimpse, a sneak peek into what this is all about. But I want to do my best to help you understand what this is, and I want to walk through it. I want to sh show you that the, even in our own well-thought-out hermeneutic, there are some complications and maybe even some shortcomings in how we apply it. So let's think about that together today. But before we do that, I, I want to give you a warning first. What happens when we get it all wrong? What is the danger in misunderstanding Scripture? I want to talk to you about something I, I've dubbed just the Pharisee problem. You guys know the Pharisees, right? They were Jesus BFFs, right? They butted heads with the Christ a lot, didn't they? Constantly trying to call him out in public in order to discredit him or even humiliate him. And they didn't have a very good track record of doing that, did they? But what was the problem? Think about this with me for just a second. We already read this passage this morning. John chapter 5, verses 39 through 40, where he tells them, you search the scripture because you think that in them you have what? Life. 
And yet you refuse to come to me so that you can have the very thing you're looking for. The Pharisees looked to Scripture for authority. The Scriptures had a high, or the Pharisees, excuse me, had a high regard for Scripture. They treated it carefully because they knew it was the God-breathed, inspired Word of God. They knew that. They believed that. They were convicted of that. And yet, here's the phenomenal thing. This is hard for me to wrap my mind around. That a group of people who loved Scripture that much, who had such a high regard for Scripture. Listen, a people who knew the Word, and yet when the Word took on flesh and dwelt among them and showed up walking the streets of their hometown, couldn't recognize Him. How can that be? How can it be that a people who knew Scripture that well couldn't recognize God when He appeared in front of them? That's something we have to think carefully about. That's something that we need to carefully consider. How can it be that people can, on one hand, have a high regard for Scripture and on another not really know who God is? It's a possibility. We see the possibility play out through the lives of the Pharisees and the way that they interact with the Christ and specifically their denial of who he was. So let's think about that reality and ask ourselves, how do we avoid it? The second thing that is worth drawing your attention to is that their interpretation of the law, of Scripture, had become as binding as the law itself. Look at Matthew chapter 15, if you would. Matthew chapter 15, let me just read the first nine verses. You're probably familiar with this passage, but let me just remind you of this interaction Jesus has. Then the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? Notice what they're not asking him. They didn't say, Why do your disciples break Scripture? Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or mother what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. And then here's the summary of the whole thing. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. So we look at, carefully at the Pharisees, we see a group of people who had high regard for Scripture, recognized it as the Word of God, were looking to it for life and law and guidance, and yet didn't recognize God when He showed up in front of them, and it turned their own interpretation of the law into law itself, and in so doing became hypocrites. So let's think about that. Have our own rules for interpreting the scriptures become as authoritative as the scriptures themselves? In the next two weeks, I'm going to ask some questions. I'm not going to give you the answer. I'm just trying to get you to think critically about this, to introduce this thought to your minds. Have our rules for interpreting the scriptures become as authoritative as the scriptures themselves? And I think that's a question worth asking. So let's reflect on our own interpretation of Scripture. I'm going to walk you through what traditionally has been the way churches of Christ approach Scripture. Okay, what is our specific hermeneutic? And it's sometimes abbreviated this way, C-E-N-I. And it breaks down into three different things. Number one, commands. We look to Scripture for commands. We look to Scripture for number two, examples. And number three, we look to Scripture for what we term necessary inferences. 
So let me just quickly walk you through what those three things are. Number one, commands. This one's pretty straightforward, right? God tells us to do something in Scripture. Our response is one of obedience. And so we do what God asks us to do. Simple enough, right? Except that context is essential. Context is absolutely essential when it comes to figuring out what God has commanded in Scripture and how it is that that might apply to us today. For example, Genesis chapter 6, verses 11 through 22. You know the story. God tells Noah, I'm tired of man. The thoughts and intentions of his hearts are only what? Evil continually. And so I am going to destroy all life from the face of the earth, save for the life that I will preserve when you do what? And he gives him a command to do what? Build him a giant boat, right, so that he can preserve life and start over fresh. Okay, there's a command in Scripture. Why don't we read that and then all of a sudden all of us get busy in our backyards building giant boats, right? And number one, because lumber is really expensive right now. But number two, because we understand intuitively when we read that, look, there's a context that matters here, right? God is giving a command to Noah in a specific context, and that doesn't apply to me today. So sometimes it's easy to look at context and say, okay, I get it. This is a command, but it's not a command given to me. And so while it's important, and I understand God's will being played out here, it's not something I need to go out and be quick to obey. How do we know if a commandment is directed at us? Look at a couple other examples. So it's so funny how Aaron's class keeps tying in with what I'm talking about Sunday morning. I guess it's not funny because the Spirit's at work through all of it, right? But this came up in our class this morning. There was a, a reference to the Great Commission. Now turn over there with me if you would. So Matthew chapter 28, and let me just remind you what this says. Matthew 28, starting in verse 16, very end of Matthew's gospel. Christ is risen, he's instructed his disciples, and this is the last command he gives them. So Matthew 28, 16 through 20, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, and when, Jesus, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always even to the ends of the age. What do we do with that passage? It's a commandment given specifically in context to a group of 11 men, the 11 remaining apostles. Remember, Judas had gone out and hung himself because of remorse over his betrayal of Christ. But there's a specific context to that, and yet we spend a lot of time in the church today talking about the ways in which that applies to us. Now, I'm not going to flesh all that out for you this morning, but I I want you to just consider the question, when you read that, how do you know that that applies to us today? What are the clues in the context within that passage that make it clear to you that this isn't just something given to those 11 men, but there's, there's an imperative given to the Lord's church for all time here? Why is it that we read scripture that way? And I'm tell, all, I'm, all I'm getting you to think about is that at work in your own mind when you read scripture, you are looking for those contextual clues and they're using them as a way to figure out whether the commands given in scripture are applicable or not. So, yes, we look to commands in scripture to guide us, but we have to be careful to think critically about the context in which we find them so that we don't find ourselves obeying commands that are not applicable to us any longer. So, number one is commands. These are the things we look at in Scripture. Number two, examples. 
We have loads of examples in Scripture, right? Survey the entirety of the Old Testament, and we find lots of examples of people doing really bad things. Should we follow all of those examples? Right? Once again, context matters. And once again, we understand intuitively that not every example we read about in Scripture is binding and applicable on us today. So how do we know the examples we do read are binding? Well, a lot of this has to do with, and here's another preacher nerd word, ecclesiology. In other words, what the church does. All the churchy stuff about how the church is organized and the church runs itself and all of that kind of thing. What we do when we come together collectively as a church. We search for patterns in the New Testament to try to inform us of what the church should look like today in belief and practice. We do that all the time. Aaron did it this morning when he got up and, and led our thoughts before the Lord's Supper. He took us back to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. What do we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 11? An example of what the early church did in practice. When they came together on the first day of every week, what did they do together? They took the Lord's Supper together. There's an example. Now we read that example. We read it as binding. And so what do we do collectively when we come together every first day of the week? We take the Lord's Supper together. This is what we mean when we talk about examples in Scripture. But once again, how do we know when examples are binding? What do we do with all the examples we find in Scripture? Let me just throw some things at you to get you thinking about this critically. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Turn over there if you would. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. I'm assuming by the silence that you're all turning in your apps. Okay, good. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 through 4. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so also you are to do. And just let me just point out right there how interesting that is. Brother Glenn brought up the same phenomenon in class this morning when Paul was talking about, hey, you read the letter I wrote to this church and they're going to read the letter I wrote to you. That Paul is not going from church to church giving them all different in contrary and arbitrary sets of things to do, right? There were patterns developing in what the early church did in practice. And so he said, just like I told the churches in Galatia, I'm going to tell you too. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there be no collection when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredited by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, then I will accompany then they will accompany me. This is another passage that we go to to use as an example of what the early church did. And so what did we do at the end of our partaking of the Lord's Supper together today? We reminded ourselves that we are commanded to lay by in store. There's an example of the early church doing that every week, and these are the ways that you can do that. Okay? But here's what I want to ask you. I want to get you to think about. We have examples of what the early church did with their money. Are those examples exhaustive? Did they do anything with their money that isn't recorded in Scripture? Do you think it's possible that in the entirety of the work of the New Testament church, that they may have spent their money on something and it's just not recorded for us in Scripture? Is that a possibility? And if so, what does that mean? What if your church or our church here collectively spends money on something that we don't have an example of in Scripture? Well, that's going to happen, isn't it? Because what are we meeting in right now? A structure that was foreign to them in the first century church, right? They didn't have big, beautiful church buildings to meet in. They didn't have the ongoing expenses of those buildings, right? So you're not going to find book, chapter, and verse for the early church writing their monthly check to SoCal Edison. 
It doesn't exist. We spend money on things the early church didn't spend money on. So are these examples exhaustive and are they restrictive? Are examples restrictive? In other words, can we only spend money on the things that we see the early Christians spending money on? And if so, then we must be consistent with that approach towards the interpretation of Scripture. If that's how we look at restrictions in Scripture, then let's at least be consistent with it. And so these are just some things I'm throwing at you to think critically about the way that we interpret Scripture. Commands, examples, and finally, necessary inference. And this one, just the word, gives us trouble because what in the world makes an inference necessary? It's a challenge to think about, right? But this is the term that we've settled on. And so necessary inference. What is an inference? It means there's no command in Scripture. There's no example in Scripture. But when I read it, I infer naturally that this must be true. Okay, so we're talking about church buildings. Let's talk about that some more. Where did the early church meet by way of practice? What is the example we have of where they met? Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, we're already there. Skip down to verse 19. The churches of Asia send you greeting, Aquila and Priscilla, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. When the church began meeting in Jerusalem, they were enormous. And so they took, use, or, or took advantage of public spaces where they could all gather together like Solomon's portico. But when they dispersed and the movement really began outside the walls of Jerusalem, where did those early churches meet? They met in each other's homes. They went from house to house. That's where they met. So that's the example that we have. Now we still meet in each other's houses, right? We had a chance to get together with a, a wonderful group in the McPeaks home on Friday night. It was awesome. I love fellowship like that. I love the small groups that you guys are working on here. I'm excited to get to be a part of those and get to know you guys more through opportunities like that. But we still have this thing, right? We still meet here collectively because, I, I don't know, maybe I shouldn't make an assumption, but I doubt any of you have a living room big enough to seat 150 people on Sunday mornings. So we've got to build something, right? We've got to meet somewhere. But there's no example and there's no command. So what do we do? We infer from Scripture that because we're commanded to gather together and we're too big to meet in each other's homes, we've got to have a place to meet, right? So where do we get the authority for church buildings from? From our inference from Scripture that they're, ne they're necessary in order to fulfill the command to meet together. But here's what I want you to think about when it comes to the way that we infer things from Scripture or the way that we like to say we necessarily infer things from Scripture. When we create binding rules based off of our inferences, are we in fact acting just like the Pharisees did? That's a question worth asking. Should we allow our inferences to become obstacles to other people's freedoms? In other words, there's no command in Scripture that tells us we have to build church buildings. There's no examples of them building and owning church buildings. We've inferred from Scripture that God is okay with us having church buildings. But if you're going to do that, then here are the things that you can do with those church buildings. And here are the things you can't. And so we bind the rules that we've made based on our own inferences on other people. And when we do that, we have waded into some very dangerous territory. And we might find ourselves in the same position the Pharisees did. So there's just a very quick overview of the way that we tend to look at how we read Scripture. We look for commands, we look for examples, and then when we don't find them, we have to make inferences necessarily. But as you've seen, 
Sometimes there are shortcomings in our approach. And what am I suggesting? That we throw all that out the window and we stop looking for patterns in the scripture? No, please do not misunderstand me. I am not being critical of our hermeneutic. I'm being critical of ourselves. We should not stop searching for patterns in Scripture because I believe that they are there. But that pattern, and this is what we're going to talk about next week, must be built upon the foundation of the character of God. There is something absent in C-E-N-I, and that's what we're going to talk about next week. We know it, and we use it in the way that we interpret Scripture. We just don't articulate it very well sometimes. And so as we come back together next week, let's talk about how the character of God should shape the way that we interpret and apply Scripture. Our hermeneutic is not misguided, but we sometimes definitely are. And so what can we do to safeguard ourselves so that as we learn more about Scripture, we don't end up knowing Scripture, but not knowing God? Scripture should lead us to Christ, and Christ leads us to the Father. Let's make sure that the way that we interpret Scripture, the way that we apply Scripture, the way that we read the Bible conforms us more and more into the image of our Savior. And so let's talk more next week about some of the things that we can do to safeguard ourselves to make sure that that is happening when we open up the pages of God's Holy Word. So I invite you to join us again next week for that. I realize that for some of you here this morning, you may be brand new students to the Bible. And by the way, if you're here visiting with us this morning, thank you so much. You're an honored guest. We'd love to have the opportunity to study with you some more and encourage you any way you can, or any way we can. If you are intimidated by Bible study, and what I mean by that is if, if you want to know what God is telling you, but you're not exactly sure how to do it, and your approach towards Scripture is simply, you know, I'll open it up and I'll point and I hope that that's applicable. Well, that's better than nothing. But our goal for you would be so that you know Scripture well enough to know that when I am searching for an answer to this, this is the place in Scripture I go. I would love it that we all know Scripture that well. And so, if you're not there yet, but you want to be, we invite you to join us on this journey together as we learn more about God's Word. And by learning more about God's Word, we learn more about God. And by learning more about God, we trust more fully in God. And by trusting more fully in God, we see God at work in our lives. And if you want to see God at work in your life today, then we offer you an invitation. We're going to stand and we're going to sing a song. If we can serve you and your family in any way at all, please let us know how we can do that. We're going to stand and we're going to sing. You can come and grab uh, either myself or one of the elders in front and let us know how we might be able to do that. And if you're not comfortable doing that, then grab us in the hallway after services and let us know. But let's all stand and let's sing together. Shine.